Podcast with Jade Windsor. Hello and welcome. My name is Jade Windsor, and this is the Confetti Rampage Podcast. Today, I'm going to share my thoughts on the White House COVID cell, the novel Such a Fun Age by Kylie Reed, give a little insight into my life, and discuss the upcoming election. If you're hearing this, I want to thank you for dropping by, and I hope you'll stick around. So let's just get right into it. Donald Trump, the man who lost the 2016 election's popular vote by millions. The man who spent seven months of 2020 telling us that COVID is a hoax, that it isn't dangerous, that it isn't that big of a deal, and spent those seven months making fun of anyone who's taken this pandemic seriously, contracted COVID. Look, I'm not surprised. I'm honestly kind of surprised it took as long as it did. I'm also not going to sit here and make fun of him or wish him ill or well for that matter. That's what, that's what TikTok's for. But let's just imagine for a moment that the White House followed the proper protocols. Hope Hicks, Melania Trump, Donald Trump, Barron Trump, Trump's body man Nick Luna, Trump's campaign manager Bill Stupian, RNC chairwoman Rona McDaniel, Kellyanne Conway, our angel Claudia Conway, Governor Chris Christie, Senator Mike Lee, Senator Tom Tillis, Senator Ron Johnson, Pastor Greg Laurie, President of Notre Dame, Father John Jenkins, None of them would have tested positive for this illness. Honestly, it would be one thing if they had no regard for themselves and they just didn't care if they get it. That's fine, I guess. It's a free country. If you want to get sick, that's up to you. But what, what makes me angry, really just makes me sick to my stomach and pisses me off, is the innocent people around them who've been infected. I mean, at least three White House press pool members have been infected, at least two White House communication aides have been infected. At least two members of White House housekeeping staff have been infected. And all of those people have definitely been around other people. So we're talking, I mean, potentially hundreds and hundreds of cases, and who knows how many people will end up dying because of this. I mean, I'm sure by the time you hear this, the list will have grown. They're not really reporting numbers or anything like that anymore, so we won't necessarily know. But where does it stop? When? Does this administration finally follow the protocols developed by people who spent their entire lives and careers studying diseases like COVID? Now, I mean, if you believe, like I do, the psychoanalysis set forth by Mary Trump, PhD, in the book she wrote about Donald, then you know it'll probably never happen. I mean, all through Trump's life, all through his childhood, everything growing up, his father showed him that illness is weakness, and weakness cannot be tolerated. Even as an adult, as his brother Fred Jr. struggled with alcoholism, Fred showed Donald that it was just weakness, and weakness can't be tolerated. It is my opinion that due to Trump's upbringing, he is, as a result, incapable of feeling empathy. He's just psychologically incapable of putting himself in another person's shoes and understanding their pain and suffering. His inability to feel empathy, when fused with the stunning refusal of his followers to accept any narrative other than Trump's, even when all the facts in the world prove Trump wrong, are the reason that as of today, 217,000 people are dead in this country. 
this combination is the reason we're still suffering immensely seven months into this pandemic. It's the reason there's no end in sight. And Trump's own actions since his diagnosis and supposed cure highlight this. You know, I, I genuinely hope anyone listening to this is not suffering. I hope you still have income. I hope you still, that you live in a state which has chosen to care for its people. And I hope as we continue to grapple with this and survive through this virus, you're safe and can find some sort of comfort. I mean, I, I've said all I can say without just screaming into this microphone about the way they've handled this. So we're going to switch topics now. Now, I want to discuss at length a book I recently finished reading. The book is called Such a Fun Age by Kylie Reed. I'm going to try really hard not to have any spoilers because I think really everybody should read this book. Now, this novel is told from first-person narration of both Amira, a black woman who works as a typist for the Green Party and as a part-time babysitter for Briar Chamberlain, the quirky eldest child of Peter and Alex Chamberlain. And Alex Chamberlain is the second narrator, per the publisher, tells the story of a young black woman who is wrongly accused of kidnapping while babysitting a white child and the events that follow the incident. Right from the start, let me tell you what. This novel takes an unapologetic look at a lot of things that are going on in the United States. Right out of the gate, this novel takes a very timely look at race relations, class relations, casual racism in the United States. You know, the when the novel first starts, Alex Chamberlain, one of the narrators, seems like a woman who has it all. A career she's made herself, a loving family, close friends, just like I think is kind of true of anyone anywhere. Some things that happened to Alex when she was a child and a teen inform how she relates to everyone around her. And I'm not going to lie. I really, really wanted to like Alex. But I just, I always kind of felt uneasy about her through reading this book. I still feel pretty uneasy about her. Despite her character providing first-person narration for large sections of the novel, I was never quite sure that she was a reliable narrator. Now, Amira, on the other hand, I liked instantly. Like many millennials, like myself, she isn't really sure she's found any sort of passion or career. She's drifting somewhat aimlessly through life, anxious as she watches her friends find careers and feeling like she's being left behind. You know, but at the same time, she's grown so attached to Briar, the thought of leaving her breaks her heart. As the story progresses, I began to feel sorry for Amira. Both of the main white people in her life, her boyfriend and Alex, her employer, thought they knew better than her how she should live her life and told her constantly. It was really infuriating for me to read their patronizing advice. In a way, it felt like both her boyfriend and Alex thought of her as theirs, like an object. And sometimes they even took actions, believing those actions to be in Amira's best interest. But all they did was cause Amira and sometimes even themselves significant stress and pain. I, I don't understand, and I won't pretend to understand, how it feels for a person of color to have white people in their lives always telling them how things should be done, or even crossing the line and forcing a situation on them under the guise of helping. 
But I can say that having been given the opportunity to see this happen from Amira's point of view is something I'm going to be aware of in my own life as I move forward. I mean, basically the lesson I took from from this aspect of the novel is to just not give advice unless it's requested. But that's just one aspect of this fantastic novel. Books like this are why I'm constantly reading. From such a fun age, I was able to gain a better understanding of the implicit racism and biases that people encounter in their day-to-day lives. Things that I just, because of the color of my skin, wouldn't normally experience. I feel that Kylie Reed made the case that people of color, and specifically in this book, young black women, have to be wary of the intentions of everyone, because even those who say they want to help could have their own selfish motives, be it trying to assuage some guilt from their past, trying to make themselves look cool by surrounding themselves with people of color, or even wanting to help someone not make white people uncomfortable in a white-dominated world. It's an excellent narrative of racial politics, race relations, class relations, and feelings of anxiety or loss. Now, I'm not going to lie, the final chapters left me shocked, stunned, angry, and in tears, all in the period of 20 minutes. And the final sentence of the novel is something that struck me so poignantly, I, I doubt I'll forget it for the rest of my life. When I decided to start recording a podcast, I never really imagined I'd be doing a book review, but my gods, this novel is great. I recommend you check it out. Again, though, I want to reiterate, I am white. To me, this book is informative because it echoes what people of color have said to me or others around me, but I cannot claim that this novel expresses how people of color feel. Only people of color can do that. So since this is kind of like my first real episode in this format, I thought it'd be nice to give a little information about myself. I am a transgender community college dropout who is majoring in political science. Prior to that, I was a conservative Christian who didn't believe in affirmative action, LGBTQ rights, that women should be allowed access to abortions. I supported strong border protections and capital punishment. Honestly, there's every possibility I would have continued in this worldview for my entire life. After all, I was being raised to be a white man. I had every privilege there possibly is. Going into my junior year of high school, I was about to join the Young Republicans or whatever fucking high school group they have. I was in the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. I was heavily involved in my youth group. But then everything changed. I'm sure everyone has a teacher who helped them develop as a human being or who completely changed their lives, whether it, you know, just be the lessons that they taught or even something as simple as just being there. My junior year, I took American literature. My teacher was a first-year teacher, and unlike the other teachers I experienced in high school, I, I say high school because I was homeschooled until my junior year of high school, um, he ran his class as he told it, as much like a college class as a high school would allow. Instead of being treated like children, we were treated with dignity and respect. We were treated like adults. We were given the responsibility of freedom and held accountable for our actions, good or bad. Instead of drowning us in mind-numbing busy work or useless worksheets, we had discussions. And you know what was kind of shocking about this class? As compared to all my other classes, no one was acting up. No one was misbehaving. People were coming to class, doing the work, learning. Even in the most heated debates, 
when the books we were reading touched on racism, the role of church in American history, in literature, or even social issues like LGBT rights or abortion or gender roles. Because of the example this teacher set, discussions and debates never devolved into arguments or name-calling or bullying. I believe a large part of that is because we were treated like adults. He earned our respect by giving us respect. And I think maybe that's why something he said really stuck with me and crawled all through my brain until it completely turned my worldview upside down. He was explaining how we were going to write term papers, going over the usual stuff. He said instead of memorizing a bunch of facts that don't mean much on their own, like what town the Scarlet Letter was set in or what Poe meant the cask of Amadiato to be an allegory for, we were going to reach our own conclusions on what the theme of the moral was. And, he said, we would be graded on citing sources and backing up our opinions. So if you're writing a paper and you believe that Twain wrote Huckleberry Finn as an allegory of how race relations were in the United States when he wrote it, all you had to do was successfully answer one question. Why do you believe that? Why do you believe that? It didn't take long before I was applying that to each and every part of my life, not just the essays. Suddenly, I was realizing that my arguments against abortion just didn't hold up. Well, women shouldn't have an abortion because life begins at conception. Why do I believe that? Oh, because the church says so. Why do they say so? Well, that's where the research began for me. And research on abortion turned into research on gay rights, and then discovering white privilege, and learning how pervasive white supremacy is, and reconsidering my stance on border politics and religion, and why I never felt comfortable in my body. That one simple question opened up my mind to an entire world of possibility I probably never would have considered otherwise. This teacher never discussed with us what his stance on any political issues were. It wasn't until after high school when we became social media friends that I would learn his worldview. But even now, a dozen years later, I still remember the day very clearly that he taught me to ask why. Now I tell you this for three reasons. Number one, to illustrate how important good teachers are. Number two, so you can get to know me a little bit. And number three, to challenge you to do the same. Ask why. Your answers to things like abortion, religion, literally anything else may not be the same as mine. In fact, they probably won't. But that's okay. We are all individuals with our own opinions and beliefs. Discussing those opinions and beliefs leads to understanding. Understanding leads to harmony. Right now, we could do a service to this country if more people stopped and asked why. And that brings us to one last thing I kind of want to talk about a little bit before I go here. As of today, Thursday, October 15th, 2020, it has been reported that 10.6 million people have already cast their ballots. Compare this to 2016, when at this point only 1.6 million ballots had been cast. And it's plain to see the significant difference this election season. Now, this could very well be due to the COVID-19 pandemic currently ramping up in the United States, but it could also be because of higher overall participation. Both the Trumpists and the Democrats in Antifa can feel that this election will have consequences on a scale not seen since 1860, and both sides will turn out in droves. 
but there's also an alarm to be sounded here. An estimated 46 million ballots that have been mailed to, mo- to voters have not yet been returned. For your hatred of Trump, for your love for your country, please complete and fill out these ballots as soon as possible. No matter what the polls say or how many people have already voted, your participation is required for us to have a chance to stop this fascist Trump regime. And on that note, I'm going to go ahead and end for the day. I hope everybody is staying safe. I hope everybody is staying healthy. I do want to challenge you. If you've ever sat and thought, why do I believe this? Comment on my Facebook. Comment on my Instagram, my Twitter, my TikTok, anything, and tell me about it. I think it would be awesome for discussions to take place about times when we've really thought, why?